This is Movie Land with CJ Johnson. You fill up my senses like night in a forest, like the mountains in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert, like a sleepy blue ocean. You fill up my senses. Come fill me again. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. You may have noticed we took a week off and might take another week off. In other words, for the next little bit, just a show, just an episode every two weeks, not every week, because it is spring here in Sydney, and I've got a couple of writing deadlines as well. So we're just going to slow things down a little bit, just one episode every two weeks, not every week, just for a while, and just enjoy the spring. My little girl's on holiday this week too, I want to spend some more time with her. But anyway, let's have a little review episode for you, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. John Denver's Annie's Song was used very prominently in this year's Free Fire and Oakja. His song Take Me Home Country Roads was used very prominently in Alien Covenant and Logan Lucky. Now, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, uses both songs very prominently. Channing Tatum was in Logan Lucky and is now in Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Is all this coincidence? I don't think so. I think Matthew Vaughan, director and co-writer of Kingsman, is having a sly joke, and it's perfectly in keeping with the tone of his unexpectedly mega-successful Bond-parodic action franchise. I wasn't a fan of the first instalment, Kingsman The Secret Service, from 2014. At the time, I wrote... There's a lot of spitfire razzle-dazzle, but barely any wit, panache, or charm in this huge, bloated misfire of a movie that sits like a spew stain on the impeccable jacket of Colin Firth's body of work. I think that is a pretty good piece of film criticism, if I may compliment myself. My main issue with that film essentially goes uncorrected here in the sequel. The dialogue is simply unfunny, but thinks that it's funny, making everyone, cast and audience, uncomfortable. But the tone, and especially the imagery this time around, is much more fun. It may not be funny, but it's cheeky, and every single shot is bright, crisp, colourful, wittily designed, and gorgeous to look at. It's an action movie that's actually really easy on the eyes. There's also a villainous plot, which doesn't get going until an hour and 15 minutes into the film, mind you, which wouldn't actually be too horribly out of place in an actual James Bond movie. The world's most powerful drug lord, Poppy Adams, Julianne Moore, taints her product with a nasty virus that infects all users worldwide, hundreds of millions of them, and sends them into paralysis, with death imminently promised unless they legalise all recreational drugs worldwide, in which case she will release the antidote. This is a nifty idea and actually engenders a series of even niftier twists. And Puppy's Lair, a clearing in a South American jungle in which she has built a tiny replica of 1950s Americana, is very neat. Killer robot dogs and all. Killer robot dogs? 
Yes, really, Killer Robot Dogs. This is a movie that is stuffed with stuff. It's crazy long, two hours and 21 minutes, which is about the average running time of the Daniel Craig, James Bond films. And there are so many action set pieces that I certainly can't recall them all. And I had just seen the film when I wrote this review. It's so long and there's so much stuff in it that the first hour or so before we get that Julianne Moore plot becomes instantly forgettable. And when one major actor re-enters the film in the final act, it's a jolt because you'd forgotten that they were even in the film in the first place. Like chocolate cake with chocolate sauce and chocolate ice cream on a chocolate plate, it's yummy and gets your serotonin pumping, but it's also just too much. But boy, isn't that a first world complaint? Too much chocolate? When people tell me the Oscars are too long, I tell them to piss off. It's once a year. I want a lot of Oscars. If you don't like the Oscars, don't watch the Oscars. So maybe too much Kingsman is a good thing. In fact, part of the film's shtick is that there's just so much of it. It's the relatively charming, incredibly well-designed, friendly action comedy that keeps on giving. This really is a film that you can feel comfortable going to the bathroom when you need to, because in the extremely grand scale of things, you can't have really missed anything because there's so much more to come. Taron Egerton returns as Eggsy, the young likely lad recruited into the British private secret service Kingsman by Colin Firth's Harry Hart in the first film. Harry Hart was killed off pretty decisively in that one, shot through the eye by Samuel L. Jackson, which usually means you're kaput, but he's rather miraculously resurrected here, which of course instantly forfeits from the movie any rights to making us worry about anyone. When you bring back a character from the dead because the audience wants the actor back, There aren't high stakes, just big paychecks and theoretically big returns. I suspect that this instalment is going to be a massive box office hit around the world. Colin Firth looks almost as uncomfortable as he did in the first Kingsman movie, and his character is very strangely written. There is one major decision he makes that's vital to the course of events in the film that still has me scratching my head. Edgerton is more enjoyable than he was in the original, though, because mainly he's in the suit more and in his hood clothes less. He was really, really hard to swallow as the cap-wearing lager lad in the origin story. He's much easier to take once he's in his spy garb and being a spy rather than a local street urchin. Julianne Moore makes the best possible meal out of every one of her lines and if those lines had only actually been witty we may have had at least in her character Poppy a very memorable villain. The movie's star performance is from Mark Strong whose character Merlin operates as the Q figure of the franchise, the gadgets guy and tech wizard. Mark Strong has been playing both tough guys and parodies of tough guys for a while now. His secret agent in Sacha Baron Cohen's film Grimsby from a few years ago and quite criminally underseen that film was an absolute hoot. And here, Mark Strong kind of does both, bringing in every scene he's in some tonal coherence to the movie. His final scene is truly wonderful. It would have worked with perhaps a 10% alteration in performance in a real Bond film, which is the vibe the whole movie, the whole franchise should aspire to. That's Kingsman, The Golden Circle, and that is in cinemas at the moment. And just a quick little review of another film called The King's Choice. Since you asked, yes, The King's Choice 
is kind of a cross between the king's speech and Sophie's choice. It's about a largely ceremonial king who must rise to the challenge of guiding his nation, the king's speech, while forced to make a choice imposed on him by Nazis, Sophie's choice. It's also an extremely well-made and compellingly evocative and emotive historical drama, bleeding beautiful craftsmanship from every pore. The king in question is King Hakon VII of Norway, and the choice he must make over the course of three days in April 1940 is whether to resist or accept German occupation. It's a big, difficult decision, the kind that no training in the world prepares you for, because the Nazis were playing by new rules, their own. To resist would almost certainly result in Norwegian casualties. To bend over and let the Nazis walk in, as his brother the King of Denmark does hours before, would be a betrayal of, as he sees it, everything he stands for as a sovereign. Tough one. As a history lesson, the film is exemplary. It certainly plugged gaps in my knowledge about not only Norway's entry into the war, but also many aspects of Scandinavian monarchy. But it's also a deeply affecting story on a personal level, not only full of suspense and tension, but also emotion. If Dunkirk is this year's big World War II film about the planes and the boats, this is the one about the people. That's the King's Choice. That's certainly in Australian cinemas at the moment. And I have another little review I can give you because it's just opened in Australia, and that's the film Beatrice at Dinner. Beatrice at Dinner, starring Salma Hayek. I found Beatrice at Dinner excruciating to sit through, even at a very slender 82 minutes. I'm extremely sensitive to social awkwardness, and this film is stuffed with it. Cringe comedy, I can do. Unlike some people, I have no problem binging on two or three consecutive episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm or the British version of The Office. But when actors are deftly playing painfully awkward social moments with realism and not for laughs, I do find it very hard to bear. In this case, the social milieu is that of the impeccably tasteful Californian gated community Coastal Rich. Kathy, played by Connie Britton, is the perfectly poised, seemingly well-attuned wife of Grant, David Warshofsky, who is less likeable. They're having two of his associates and their partners to dinner to celebrate some sort of zoning or legal issue that will pave the way for ground being broken on a real estate project that will all make them all richer, and to varying degrees, they're all already very rich. One of those associates is wildly richer than the others. He's a billionaire, Trump rich, even Murdoch rich. And he suffers from billionaire syndrome. He is so sheltered, so surrounded by sycophants, that he can pass around a triumphantly smiling photo of himself in Africa with a rifle and a large dead rhino that he has killed and not worry about hearing anything but congratulations. He is, by most of the world's reckoning, disgusting. And he is played with sickening charm. I'm sure guys like this are usually charming. They can afford to be by John Lithgow, who is perfect casting for many reasons, not least of which is his Trump-like height. He towers above all as a benevolent bully should. The odd one out at the table is Beatrice Salma Hayek. She's a healer combining massage and many other holistic methods, particularly for cancer patients. She helped during Kathy and Grant's daughter's cancer, which has since gone into remission, and now occasionally comes by to give Kathy a massage. This afternoon, her car breaks down at their house, and she's invited to stay for dinner, where she disrupts things aplenty. 
Beatrice is a tricky character. She is annoyingly socially clumsy. Talk about not being able to read a room. But the heavy-handed script by Mike White forces her on us as nothing other than a paragon of virtue. She is so noble, she may as well be a saint or an angel. Hayek's odd performance doesn't help matters. At times, she makes Beatrice appear simple. Also, perhaps, a fault of the script, especially if that's not the intention. The milieu is impeccably depicted with superb telling observations. The maitre d' for the evening, played by John Early, is dressed in smart casual business rather than waiter attire, which rings very true as some hip thing at wealthy business dinner parties in California. And the film is shot scrumptiously, the Californian haze creating the most perfect ocean view dusk one could imagine. Indeed, the direction by Miguel Arteta does the best it possibly can with the script, but the script is an on-the-nose, ultimately annoying clanger. And if anyone can claim the ending as satisfying, I would love to hear their reasoning. You can send me that reasoning to any of my social accounts. They're all at CJ Movie Land. That is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at CJ Movie Land. Follow us on those uh, accounts. Also read my written reviews, filmmafia.com.au. That's filmmafia.com.au. Watch me review and discuss films on my web TV show, Watch This, produced by Skippy TV. You can find that on Skippy TV. That's S-K-I-P-I dot TV. We've got about 38 episodes there and counting. Above all, please make sure you see a movie at the cinema this weekend. Take care. Country roads take me home.